Okay, so I have to explain myself. I left the session up overnight. I came down on Tuesday morning, this morning, to uh, get to editing. I made my first few edits, and I edit as I go. I mean, Mm -hmm. sorry, I save as I go. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't wait till the end. So I go to hit that first save, and nothing happens. It just doesn't save. So I try it again, and it doesn't happen. So I have the bright idea to take everything we recorded on Monday night, copy it, open a new uh, file, you know, open a new session, paste everything there and try to save it again. So everything works. It, it pastes fine, but it still won't let me save. So I close it out and expect for my copy paste to still be there. But of course it wasn't. So that's why we're doing take two. I wonder if you have an experience with losing something big. What's, what's your biggest media loss? <laughs> Is there one that sticks with you? Yeah, but I have to go all the way back to reel-to-reel tape. Okay. Yeah, I was working on uh, a program called River City Folk, Mm -hmm. and I had gotten about halfway through, and there was an interview segment that I was working on, and you have to cut the tape and then lay it in your lap. Okay. Because you don't want to throw it away, right? Because you don't know if you've got everything on there that you want or not. So you got to hang on to it, right? Sure. I didn't do that. I took out what I thought I needed to take out and I threw it in the trash. So I spent about half a day uh, fishing through garbage with other, <laughs> with other hunks of tape, listening to just that section. And nope, that's not it. Yeah. So it took me about half a day to put it back together. I mean, when I tell you that I was doing everything that I could, I was around here buying software, recovery software, and going deep into the computer anyway. Opus 142 version one is gone forever. So here we are with version two. So let's go ahead and, and uh, hop into this downbeat this week. Uh, it's uh, well, it's Women's History Month all week. And I didn't want to let March go by without honoring one of the many women who have made it in the rap game and who have been foundational to the way we think about hip-hop today. I know, Scott, that you might not be as familiar with the repertoire of the one and only Nicki Minaj, but she's certainly a name that you know. Uh, I wonder when you think about your relationship with hip-hop over the years, you know, back when you were buying those tapes and CDs, Mm -hmm. if you can think of the first time you heard a woman rap, who, who would you accredit as the first woman you heard rap? Do we count Rapture by Blondie? I mean, you you tell me is the, is she rapping? There's a rap in there, yeah. <laughs> okay, well then there you go. It was it was it was Blondie for you then. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have access to a lot of information. I didn't even know what artists were out there at first. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Probably first would have been along the lines of you know Queen Latifah. Yeah, of course. Um, things that you know people around her. Yeah. Well, I think as time goes on and, you know, hip hop isn't even 50 years old yet, technically. But as we continue to move forward in women's history, I think it's important for us to honor the many women in hip hop. And I know folks have strong opinions, you know, one way or another about Nicki Minaj. But my story is, as I was focused so hard on Western classical throughout my training, throughout school, when I finally lifted my head up and actually tried to engage the world after years of hyper, hyper focus, Nicki Minaj was there. So you mentioned Queen Latifah. Queen Latifah is the artist that I cite with 
bringing me into hip hop into the first place when I was a little kid watching music videos. And I accredit Nicki Minaj with being the person that bring that brought me back into it around 2008, 2009. So all of that to say, um, she was recently interviewed by Joe Button, and it's an interview that I really appreciated. And there's an excerpt from the interview that I want to use as this week's downbeat. In this excerpt, Nicki Minaj is talking about empowerment, diversity, representation, and how being vocal are key aspects of that. Let's take a listen here. Now, listen to this. If when Billie Eilish comes out and she sets a trend with her green hair, she's an, immediately put on American Vogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when a black female rapper who has been setting the trend for 10 years does it, no one says anything. A big part of the reason why we're not represented is because we need, we have to, you know, what I think we're doing now, I think we're all speaking up for each other. So I think now you've made it so, we've all made it so, no, people have to pay attention to what they're doing, how they're treating uh, Black artists and Black people, and there has to be representation, et cetera, et cetera. I remember I would be... So, you know, that excerpt of the interview really struck a chord with me, Scott, because we talk a lot about gatekeepers when we talk about representation and inclusion and all of those things. But one of the things that Nikki was speaking to there was the fact that a key part of representation is making sure that we're speaking up for each other and calling things out, you know, acknowledging who's in the room, who isn't. I wonder if you've ever thought about that aspect of representation, really being the person to speak up and that being an important part of it. Maybe you're that person at your job now, for example. You mean speaking up if you see something you don't like, something... More than more than calling specific things out that you don't like, I guess uh, it's getting to the idea that it's our responsibility to speak to what we don't see, what we don't see represented, what oh, aesthetics sure. that aren't included. Sure. And I think in some ways that's even a little bit easier, you know, mm. because if you're pointing something out, you know, chances are there isn't a protest happening about it at the moment. Right. Right. So I think that, you know, you probably have a little bit better chance of getting some action or uh, some, you know, something being done about the issue. If you're pointing it out, maybe you catch it early. Yeah. Maybe yeah, that sure. looks better on you. Exactly. And it's better for the folks who you're wanting to include ultimately, you know, because there's someone advocating for you or that aesthetic inside the space. Nicki Minaj is talking, you know, about specifically about things like hair color and its proximity to fashion. Uh, I wonder uh, how you deal with as you get older, seeing some of these fashion trends or, or some of these things among popular stars, popular composers, I may even say, mm. uh, what, 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 what comes to mind for you? Is it, do you have just the old man shake the old, look at these youngsters. Blondie was doing that back in 19, da, 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 whatever, you know, <laughs> something close, close. No, I think it's all been done. And I really think that when something comes back in vogue, when something comes back around and is popular again, it's, hitting on something that a generation remembers from their childhood mm-hmm. you know so like when lenny kravitz came out with are you going to go my way yeah. i'm reminded of the rock that i heard on the radio when i was you know in the late 70s and early 80s so i'm i'm feeling it on two different levels because the new stuff sounds great but it also has that aspect of it that reaches down in and grabs onto something 
from my childhood or from affirming the affirming the timelessness of something or 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 of a thing. Sure. What you have me thinking about now is I wonder does that mean we pass along problems when when things get recycled and and revisited uh, if it's fashion, hair color, musical aesthetic whatever that's one thing but I wonder if the patriarchal nature of things or the racist nature of things also cycles back around as things come around. Probably. Mm, mm. Probably, you know, but, you know, being being replicated, you know, what do they say? Replication is the biggest form of flattery or you imitation. Imitation is the biggest form of flattery. I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that folks are out here imitating triloquy necessarily, but surely you've noticed in the DEI, you know, anti-racist arts ecosystem. There's a little of our sauce on some of these I am, plates. <laughs> I am really glad this is happening. I'm glad this is coming up because I can't, I could not count the number of times that you would share an email with me and go, see, now Triloquy is just so impactful. It's mm-hmm. impactful. So how can some of Triloquy's influence not be felt in other projects? I agree. When it comes to what's written down, when it comes to what makes it to the stage, we're here trying to have have an impact on it all. What was it that that New York Times article said? It's required listening for the industry. Yeah, required listening for the industry. We know people in the industry are listening, you know, and hopefully it helps and and they they can use things. And they should be required to. He also talked about dubious factual claims in that article. I was actually thinking about that today, but we won't talk about that part. (laughs) How about we go ahead and jump in? I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. That timing wasn't so bad. We, we, we're, we're getting better at that virtually. <laughs> that th- yeah, that theme hits different in the headphones over Zoom. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to Opus 142, version two, take two. Uh, to we, 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 we don't usually record on Tuesday evenings to you know, put this out on Wednesdays, but that's what we had to do this week. So thank you everyone for tuning in to returning listeners. Thank you for continuing to support this project and helping us maintain our space in this arts ecosystem. To new listeners, if this is your very first time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and creates proximity between it and more parts of the world, whether that's news stories, aesthetics of music that weren't necessarily always considered classical, all toward decolonizing the phrase classical music and everything surrounding it. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, you can visit Triloquy.org. You can check out past opuses there and also donate to the Triloquy podcast. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, which is a local arts institution here in St. Paul, Minnesota, making sure that artists have a means of making a living and a life. More information at springboardforthearts.org. I also want to send a huge thank you to the San Francisco Symphony for having me uh, in uh, your equity training, leading your equity training over the past few weeks. Scott, I didn't mention this when we tried to record this the first time, but the, the goalposts for the training sessions were excerpts from some of the Triloquy interviews 
to the point that these are narratives that exist in and around the industry. And you have to understand these narratives and what you're going to do with them if you want to build proximity to those communities. So, for example, I featured uh, an excerpt from my interview with L.A. Khalil, who didn't know where classical music is advertised. He assumed it's in the phone book. So if if I'm sitting in front of the marketing team at an orchestra and the work, what you're getting paid to do 40 hours a week isn't reaching this person, you know, this member of the younger generation that you allege to want to reach, what needs to be done about that? What conversations Mm -hmm. do we have and how can we streamline that? Anyway, that's just one example of one of the things that I brought to the front uh, with the help of the Triloquy content. So thanks to everyone at the San Francisco Symphony for uh, having me. I can't wait to get over to the Bay Area in real life. I'll have a a light sweater in tow, as I've been told is required for that part of the country year round. And and then uh, finally, I want to make sure I uh, thank and give a shout out to Excelsior Bay Books in Excelsior, Minnesota. I've never been there, but shout out to everyone uh, over there. I uh, got sent a copy of The Violin Conspiracy, which, Scott, is a story that you brought into Triloquy uh, maybe a month or so, a couple months ago. You you want to remind the people what The Violin Conspiracy is about? Sure. I'm I'm forgetting the the author's name at the moment, but um, basically, it's a, he's a, a violinist and a violin teacher, mm-hmm. and he found a way to tell his story and his experience in this business by novelizing it, drama, dramatizing it. Yeah. And um, I seem to remember from the article that everything that he shared, there was truth in it. You know, that he, that um, there was a kernel of of every story that was sure. based in fact including the violin that the main character played um was actually contested by the family that owned the slaves the enslaved peoples i i'm i'm getting lost in just trying to explain it basically the violin that the main character was playing there's a family coming after him and saying that that actually belongs to our family because his great because the main character who is black his great grandfather or his grandfather it was his violin but right. because he was enslaved under this family that means this Stradivarius is also their violin anyway right. I'm going to be, I'm angrily turning the pages of that book. I mean, you got to see some rips <laughs> in the page, but yeah. but it's a yeah. very interesting story and, and something that um, has been immortalized in, in, uh, in prose on the page. And huge thanks to Excelsior Bay Books for not only making sure that people have access to that story, but sending me a copy of the book. So thank you. Huge thank you to everyone. Thank you to everyone listening. Let's get into movement one. I'm going to get this first movement started, Scott, with a couple of naturals, first and foremost. Either last week or the week before, you know, we're talking about the continued violence over in Europe, Russia and Ukraine. I asked you, uh, as much as we're talking about sidelining uh, Russian uh, sensitive uh artists, you know, Gary Gibb, mm-hmm. Netrebko, all of those folks, I asked you about some of these historic Russian composers. And, you know, it, it seemed kind of far-fetched only a couple of weeks ago to say we're getting Tchaikovsky and those folks out of here, but it looks like it's actually happening. I wrote an article yeah. um, that I'll link for Represent Classical, uh, where I noted that the United Kingdom's Cardiff Philharmonic Orchestra 
has taken Tchaikovsky off the bill. This is uh, from their website, their official statement. It says, in light of the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, Cardi Philharmonic Orchestra, with the agreement of St. David's Hall, filled the previously advertised program, including the 1812 Overture, to be inappropriate at this time. That's from the Cardiff Philharmonic. I wonder if you think there'll be some broader impact of that decision. You already said how um, at your radio station, how certain recordings have been pulled off the shelves and they're not in rotation anymore. Mm-hmm. Is it time to take all recordings of the 1812 overture off the shelves? This is interesting because in the time since we recorded on Monday, I've been thinking, well, that was just yesterday. The, I've been thinking about this. It, is there a danger of overcorrection mm-hmm. this early yeah. on? I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it might have more to do with that piece of music in particular. So mm. a, a Russian composer's music that evokes war and, and there are even cannons in the piece of music, right? I can see how that's a little uncomfortable. But uh, as we talked about yesterday, Tchaikovsky's Second Symphony is subtitled Little Russian, the Little Russian Symphony, which really he's talking about Ukraine. So basically he's appropriating this this, uh, space, that part of the world, not as its own unique thing, but just a smaller version of what Russia is. So I think there's some digging around and poking around that could be done on Hmm. many levels. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not out here saying necessarily cancel Tchaikovsky. This is a, a European orchestra who has done that work for me. Yeah. Right. Whoops. <laughs> now, my question was, um, if you had run across any scholarship, any research at all in your time working in this, in this music that mm-hmm. ever indicated him being favorable to the Russian government. Yeah. Did you no, did? Oh, I haven't. Oh yeah. That's see, I haven't either. And mm-hmm. he always seems to me, to me, to be the sort of guy who would demure from that sort of thing. At the same time, the story and the understanding that we have around Tchaikovsky, not to play too much inside baseball here, but the the stories that we tell and understand about Tchaikovsky are very different than Shostakovich and Prokofiev, who were unquestionably against or in opposition to what was happening on the highest levels over there in Russia. So I don't know. We'll we'll see how this continues to develop. Of course, warm thoughts and prayers to everyone over there. Uh, in in Europe, all of the folks displaced. I, I try to keep one eye on the news. I saw today that there are um, apartment buildings being shelled, so it's yeah. it's really I- impacting folks there. So uh, prayers to all of the refugees uh, all around the world. While while I'm thinking about uh, Russia, uh, I also want to say free Brittany Griner. This isn't something that we've talked about on Triloquy, Scott, because honestly, I figured. It would have been taken care of by now, yeah. but you know, here we are. We're recording this on the fifteenth of March, and as far as I can tell on the internet, there's um, there's still an outcry to get her out of Russian jail over a vape pen that I'm understanding was CBD. At that, it's not even like it was THC. It was a CBD vape pen that mm. they found, and now that that has her locked up. So. To whoever can, to whomever has that power or authority. I mean, I can't even think about who would, who there would be to contact. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, post an article where you can learn about petitions and all of those things. But it's, it's really but Brittany's, a tragedy. Brittany's been playing over in Russia for close to ten years, though. Right. I mean, right. doesn't doesn't this all of a sudden seem suspicious to? Wouldn't she be carrying a ZB uh, a ZBD? <laughs> a CBD. Wouldn't they, wouldn't they be carrying a? Wouldn't she be carrying a CBD 
vape pen at that point? I mean, you, I, I've never thought about it from that angle, but you're right. How the politics are all mixed in and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, and there's no, that, that we, don't, be a thing. we don't have an ambassador there now. So right. there's not, there's no help on that front. Oh, who knows goodness. how, who knows how she's being held. And then of course, you know, from the anti-blackness we've been seeing in, in some of this footage, I can only imagine what she must be going through in a jail over there. So my, mm. my deepest thoughts and prayers to, to everyone who is uh, impacted to that in particular, to Brittany in particular, and hopefully we'll be reading about her coming home sooner than later. All right, I have one more natural uh, just to quickly go over. So last week we were talking about Azenma, and one of the questions that I posed was, well, what sort of infrastructure is being put forward for these kids who are learning violin in a different way once they leave those early education infrastructures? You know, can they go to college and continue to engage violin in this way? Well, I want to shout out a Chris. Christopher, he sent me a note and actually linked me to a violinist who's on faculty down at the University of North Texas. His name is Scott Tixier uh, or Tixier. I hope I'm pr uh, pronouncing um, your name correctly. He's a, a violinist, um, Grammy Award winning French jazz violinist, as it says on the on his uh, bio here. I'll have it linked in the description. Um, and he's out here at the University of North Texas bringing um, that sort of flavor, that jazz avant-garde, you know, outside the box violin playing all the way to the collegiate level. So we may not see it, Scott, in the profession itself, but there's a potential for some of these violinists who come up in a different way to at least be affirmed through the collegiate level, which is more mm. than I knew existed. So mm. that's, that's good to hear. Shout out to yeah. Christopher put, for uh, putting that artist onto my radar. All right, well, uh, let's go ahead and uh, jump into this week's accidentals. Uh, let me see what is on my list here. Yeah, how about uh, you get us started? You have a, a sharp to offer. I do. This is a sharp for Awadajan Pratt, and I also wanted to build on one of the things that we talked about last week, the Azinma Found Foundation. Yeah. And for those who haven't heard the last opus, we uh, Garrett was talking at length about uh, the need for structure beyond the foundation experience or the benefit that somebody did I, gets did from I it. detect a little bit of shade there speaking at length <laughs> <laughs> I, all i'm saying is that you did you did have some thoughts sure <laughs> but <Go on. laughs> um for those who don't know awadajan pratt is an incredibly successful black pianist mm -hmm. and at the beginning of this article that i found on spectrumnews1.com awadajan pratt launches new competition to give young black pianists a chance to shine. He says he felt his big break was in 1992 when he won the Nuremberg International Piano Competition, one of the most prestigious contests of its kind in the world for young pianists. He was 26 and the first black instrumentalist to win the award. So my question to you was, I understand how you feel about the found, uh, foundations and, and the need for more structure. Yeah. How do you feel about the idea of a competition for nothing but a, but black artists. Yeah, I mean, my my most leftist mind has a problem with young black people in a in an institution in an infrastructure where they're marginalized competing with each other for one thing. It, it kind of gives me Hunger Games vibes. Mm. I, I also understand that 
this is an opportunity for many people and somebody will come out, you know, as as Awa Dodge and Pratt was writing uh, in this article, it wasn't just winning that number competition that was a big deal. I mean, uh, playing with the New York Philharmonic, he cites as a big deal. You know, uh, his Carnegie Hall debut uh, in this article, he talks about having performed at the White House three times. So this is mm-hmm. somebody with connections to different spaces. And I imagine that the competition itself won't be the only way that he has an impact on up and coming pianists. But I think yeah. there's always something to critique, especially when we talk about competing for things when the resources are out there. We just set mm-hmm. it up for for this competition thing that is tantamount to, you know, the Western classical training. What is an audition, an orchestral audition, but a competition at the end of the day? And I feel like we're just so used to that sort of culture that you know, we we forget that we can critique that and we can, you know, think about what it will look like for young up and coming pianists, as we're talking about here, to not have to compete. But I get it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still honor uh, the the work that Awa Dodge and Pratt is doing with all of that being said. It says he's now 56 and he int- in, he is trying to move his focus more into the mentoring uh, turning his attention to mentoring the next generation of pianists to ensure mm-hmm. they have mentorship and support. Yeah. He quote he's quoted here as saying I realized I had this really great support system growing up, but many young pianists don't have that. Right. So, you also had uh, an opinion about the age bracket. It's offered to eight, to musicians aged 10 to 35. Yeah, and and what I connect with that critique is exactly what you just mentioned. You know, uh, Abba Dajan Pratt's quote up there is saying, "Not everyone has that system of support." So that means there are thirty-six-year-old pianists, forty-year-old, fifty-year-old, probably seventy-year-old pianists who really can perform at those high levels, but they just happen to not be the one that won these competitions or these auditions mm. or, or, or whatever. So I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, he's, he's doing more for the pianist than I'm doing right now, sitting in this chair, but you know, so I'm, I'm not going to critique it too much, but I do think there is something to be said about the creation of infrastructures that can honor those folks, the folks for whom all of these new DEI initiatives sort of miss. I mentioned this uh, last night, but Bill Doggett, who's been on Triloquy a couple times, he critiques a lot of DEI initiatives and inclusion initiatives as being a young person's game and forgetting mm. about the fact that there are folks who have been there doing the work. So I think there's something to be said about that. At the same time, you know, uh, uh, capitalizing on the heat and the fire of a young musician is important as well. I, I'm, I'm comfortable in saying that I was probably more technically proficient at age 25 than I am now at uh, almost 35. But at the hmm. same time, there's more life experience there, and and there's more uh, umph that I put into my performances, you know, based on that life experience. So I think there has to be, you know, some sort of uh, uh, accommodation or, or or conversation surrounding that. I mean, you know, speak for yourself. You're you're over fifty years old. I'm sure that the passion that you could put into writing a song, maybe not playing the piano, but writing a song, would would be far greater than what you could have done at 25 when it's time for you to enter a young oh, songwriters competition without right? without question so i, think I wouldn't have had the a, very same thing i wouldn't have had a shot at 25 
<laughs> but, but see, now you've lived enough, and and that's mm. and that's my point. I feel like that sort of life experience, that sort of musicianship born from it, can be celebrated if we get rid of these age requirements or at least rethink them. Mm. So if you're between ten and thirty-five years of age, the competition is going to debut next year. It will be a biennial event. And Garrett, they are launching it as the Nina Simone Piano Competition. And so you you say if you're 10 to 35, I can talk about all these age limits and it's always going to be some 11 year old kicking everybody's ass. At the store, you know? <laughs> so it's not even going to be that's not even going to be the thing uh, I, we're, to transition out of this accidental. I want to listen to a little bit of Nina Simone. But uh, before I do that, Scott, I wonder if you can uh, speak to what you see as the significance of naming this the Nina Simone piano competition. It wasn't called the Florence Price piano competition or the. Uh, you know, insert black woman pianist here. It was the uh, Nina Simone competition. Well, I was going to, I was just going to say it's American classical music. There we go. N- Nina Simone is. Yeah, so. there we go. When but I'm, so is Florence Price. Right, so exactly. I, so I don't, I don't know. Maybe they're trying to honor her uh, along with her activism and with uh, the fact that she straddled classical and jazz, you know, maybe because she pushed it forward that way. Yeah. I I mean, a a lot of the vocabulary that I use and lean on, I get from the activists of of last year and last decade, last generation. So when I say so-called classical music, for example, I'm thinking about the way Malcolm X said so-called Negro Mm. and affirming that Mm. that word exists, but that that's just what we're called. So uh, when I say when I think about American classical music or even black classical music, I got that from Nina Simone. I first heard that phrase from her. So I'm Mm. I'm excited uh, about the possibilities of not only the affirmation of young black pianists, but young black piano music and young the young black uh, piano uh, perspective. I I hope that, Mm. you know, her name is honored, not only just on the face of this thing, but in the spirit of what she really wanted to do. So with all that in mind, I think we've uh, aired Love Me or Leave Me on Triloquy before, but this week I want to share an excerpt of her performance of this uh, as it appeared, as it was heard on the Ed Sullivan Show back in 1960. Just a really incredible display of how Nina Simone mixed worlds, both the class, the so-called classical and the so-called jazz, all to create one unique thing. A little bit here of Nina Simone's Love Me or Leave Me. Counter melody to the fugue there and all of that stuff. When I hear that, I just think about the cool. You know, imagine you're at a party and the coolest one in the room, who everyone knows can dance, 
starts dancing a little goofy to make the room loosen up a little bit. We know you can you can bust the uh, uh, the running man and all of that stuff. <laughs> and he sits there and does something for the sake of the room and just to lighten the mood. That's what I hear there. Of course, Nina Simone and all of her folks can play those straight 16th notes considering all of the other stuff they do. So I, I just see that as uh, performances like that as examples of Nina Simone tipping her hat to what came before and mixing it in with what's now. I actually aired the studio version of Love Me or Leave Me on my show down in uh, Knoxville one year. And I actually asked permission. Shout out to Todd Steed. I sent him an email. This is the last day I think of Black History Month. And I was like, listen, I have to talk about Nina Simone. And this is something that I think will be the least offensive to the classical audience. Is it okay? And he said it was fine. And of course, all the feedback on that was phenomenal, which I think is just a, a tiny example of how we can just open ourselves up to something even just a little different. We'll see that there's broad appreciation for it. I, I wish for every classical Western classical music audience, every classical radio listener to be familiar with that performance because- mm. As I said, I think it's a perfect mix of what was then and what is now. Now, not only as far as the timeline, but now when it comes to people's sensibilities, what'll get their foot tapping, what'll get their mind off of the traffic they're dealing with on the road. Yeah, I'm sure of a Corigliano something can do that, but I will go as far as to say that Nina Simone can do it a little better. I think that's fair to say. So. <laughs> Did you really use the word offensive, though, that would be the least offensive to the classical crowd? Is that what you really said? I mean, uh, wh wh why are you asking me? Is that an assumption that they should, should I have not made that assumption? Is that what you're getting at? I'm, I, I just don't know if that's offensive seems a little far. I mean, you, you might, you know, irritate them. Well, of course, I mean, you know that people are offended, quote unquote, by the the smallest things in, in this field. So, well, I guess maybe it's because I don't find it offensive. So sure, that's sure. why. Well, anyway, shout out to Awadaj and Pratt. Rest in power to the late great Nina Simone. And make sure you check out Love Me or Leave Me if you don't know that. All right. I'm going to offer an accidental for this week. I'm going to grab a sharp and pass it down to the Silk Road Ensemble and Spellman College. Uh, for folks, I'll, I'll let you do this part, Scott. For folks who may not have heard of the Silk Road Ensemble, how would you contextualize what they are and what they do? From my experience from them, they take traditional pieces and play them in a, with a mixture of orchestral and traditional instruments. Mm -hmm. So like a, maybe a folk piece from China and you will hear some of those Chinese instruments in there, but also there's Yo-Yo Ma mm -hmm. playing the cello, and um, it's a um, it's a cohort, really. It's a yeah, cadre, like a, 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 a collective, if you will. Right. There's like, um, uh, if I'm remembering what I read yesterday, there's close to sixty different musicians that have played as part of the the Silk Road Ensemble. So yeah. And then, you know, again, speaking to their name, Silk Road, yes, there's the uh, East Asian aesthetic that's explored, but also there's uh, Slavic music that makes it in there, mm -hmm. aesthetics uh, tied with the, the Middle East, all sort of incredible stuff. J just so folks uh, know the general aesthetic that uh, we're talking about, I found a Silk Road ensemble performance here that I'd like to share just as a point of reference. This is called the Arabian Waltz, just to give you all an idea of the sort of sounds the Silk Road Ensemble offers to the world of classical music. 
it, it always just gets my my head bobbing. It, Scott, it, it makes me feel like in the time when you could really hear that sort of music on the streets and and throughout the local ecosystems around the world, Haydn, Mozart, and them must have been shitting on that. You know, yeah. must have been talking about that's the music that's you know offensive to our audiences or whatever. I don't know. I think that sound is so much more accessible than a lot of the things that we center when we talk about classical programming. What what, mm. what, are, what are your ideas on that? I feel like more people could find themselves grooving to that than to, you know, Baccarini's Minuet. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you love to poke on Baccarini. Okay, um, any, you uh, insert the blank, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was just curious if you might have had something against him. Um, I think that, you, I think that you've got a better shot at getting this format, this the, or the idea that we're presenting closer to you, to what you envision through yeah. music like this. Yeah. Rather than asking somebody to appreciate the Baroque, why not play something that is closer to the music that they already know? You know, why not? Why not give them something that they can more readily identify with? And something that we haven't heard a kajillion times. You know, I, I, I'm very careful with my usage of the phrase world music. I don't mm. like it. It's like the ethnic food aisle at the grocery store that I go down, but still. <laughs> yeah. Right. And uh, I, I, so all of that to say, I think one of my biggest visions is for anywhere around the world, but especially in the United States and in the Western world, when the phrase classical music is used, I want what we think about when we use the phrase world music to come to mind only as an affirmation of the different styles of classical music that exist all around the world. So personally, mm. I feel like the Silk Road Ensemble has a really incredible opportunity to help programmers and help presenters in convincing folks of that narrative and that idea of a global classical music instead of one that centers a Western aesthetic. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people, you know, not me, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who wouldn't bat an eye at turning on their classical radio station and uh, hearing uh, another uh, Corelli cantata or whatever. I also feel like those same people would appreciate hearing music like we just heard. So I think it's important to think about how those gaps can be bridged anyway. You know, oh, go ahead. Now, my question is how successful do you think the Silk Road project would be if Yo-Yo Ma wasn't attached. I knew you were going to ask that. And you see, I think that gets back to what Nicki Minaj was saying in the downbeat. We need folks and people of influence and ev you know everywhere to really speak up to what's not in the room, who's not in the room. We have to speak up for ourselves. And because Yo-Yo Ma decided to speak up for an aesthetic of music that he wanted to offer energy to attach his name to and everything, you know, that that surrounds something having the name Yo-Yo Ma attached to it. I think it, it's great that he did that. I see that as a as, as someone understanding the impact and influence they have in the ecosystem and taking advantage of that. We talk about taking advantage of your privilege, doing something with it. I see Yo-Yo Ma having done that. And maybe mm. he wasn't thinking about it that hard. Maybe this was just music that he loved. Maybe he's not thinking about the decolonization of, of classical music, but I'll take the wins where I can get them. You <laughs> I'll could take even, the movement where I can get it. That is a great way to get it on the air. You can say, well, what? why are you upset? This is Yo-Yo Ma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
well, you know, <laughs> all, all of that in describing the Silk Road Ensemble uh, to announce that they have announced a residency at Spelman College. So for folks who don't know, Spelman College is, of course, a historically a black college down in Georgia, a women's college. And this residency, this collaboration uh, is going to be led by Rhiannon Giddens, who we've talked a little bit about on Triloquy, and a violinist named Maz Swift. I'll read a little bit uh, from this article. It says here, all of us at Silk Road are thrilled to be forging this new partnership with Spelman College and to contribute to students' educational journey through exploration and exposure to diverse musics and cultures. This experience will be just as enriching for us as we hope it will be for them. That's a quote from Rhiannon Giddens. What I'm thinking about, especially when I uh, think about the music that Rhiannon Giddens has put out into the world, reminding the world that folk music is also a black music, even things that we might call country music. I think there's such an opportunity to bridge the gaps between foundational American musics and aesthetics and how that might apply to aesthetics from around the world. Imagine that Arabian dance that we just heard, but instead of uh, that flute, it was a banjo or something, you know, Mm. reaching into that intersection. That's the sort of content that I think, you know, we could be seeing out of this collaboration. I think it's really exciting. Mm. Congratulations to Rihanna. And I'm looking at some of these photos here and it looks like she is playing a banjo, but some of them look to be traditional. Do you know the name of the African instrument that it's based on? I mean, she's playing all kind of. Well, of course, we know that the banjo is based on an African instrument. As right, uh, the what's the man's name? The famous uh, banjo player that Bela Fleck. He he did the documentary in uh, mm-hmm. Africa and showed everybody that. But yeah, there's instruments like the ananga and and those things. I'm not looking at the. I, I must not be looking at the same thing you're looking at. But I, I just think there's a lot there. I mean, I, I wonder what you might be interested in hearing at the intersection of you know, American folk and black music and understanding what the Silk Road Ensemble has always been given to the world. I wonder where you can imagine for them. Wow. Um, imagine what they could do with a spiritual. Yeah. Um, or even, you know, what would it be like if they started out with a really basic spiritual and by the end they were playing blues and jazz? If they just went through eras like that? Yeah. It could yeah. be cool. That would be something. And then, of course, I think, you know, you can hear how the influences and the origins have a lot in common. We were uh, when we were over at your house earlier this week and you turned on that Croatian music. All I heard was early 90s R&B. You know? <laughs> and and, and we'll, we'll bring that music in maybe uh, next month and talk a little bit about it. But I, I think there are just so many intersections and uh, points of uh, cross pollination, as you say, that the reverberations and the impact could be huge. We center this art form a lot on education and exposure, you know, teaching people about this great music. What if we could meet them where they are and use that as the jumping off point? That's one of the, you know, biggest opportunities I see here. So, yeah. Yeah. Congratulations to everyone at Silk Road. Congratulations to everyone down there at Spelman. Uh, This article actually uh, came out just yesterday. So I'm sure in the coming uh, weeks and months, we'll have some videos on YouTube to celebrate and stand over. But yeah. Yeah. But in in the meantime, I wanted to uh, transition us into the second movement uh, by featuring a performance 
of Maz Swift. So again, this residency is headed by Rhiannon Gittins, but also Maz Swift, who is an interdisciplinary violinist who has all sorts of incredible stuff out there. What we're going to hear from Maz Swift today is a performance of a work that she called Poem for a Song That's Yet to Come. This was presented back in 2020 at the Mostly Mozart Across the Boroughs Festival in New York City. Really incredible performance here featuring Maz Swift to get us into the second movement of this week's opus. Well, I'll tell you again, but this time, this time, this time, do just more than listen. Do I mean, Scott, I think we're hearing it right there. So when she started to sing while playing the violin, I was instantly reminded of some of those Iranian and Persian aesthetics that I've heard mm-hmm. coming from Silk Road. I think this, I don't know, I'm, I'm excited about this. And, and I hope folks aren't sleeping on this collaboration because what we could get from it is really limitless and could be a huge step forward again toward the decolonization of that phrase classical music. I'm sure not everyone is thinking along those lines, but that's exactly the opportunity that I hear right in front Mm. of us when I think about that sort of collaboration. You just don't see that very often, a violinist vocalizing yeah, uh, or a a string, in classical anyway. Um, uh, Herak Nazarian, I think, is the cellist that you played last night that you know he, he and that you brought into triloquy right, maybe a year ago or so that he vocalizes as he's playing oh just amazing talent yeah yeah absolutely you know it, it reminds me of something that my very first band director said i was 12 years old i hadn't been a, a instrumentalist for three months and i remember him saying well you know what i guess he had it in for the choir teacher he said at the end of the day all musicians sing but some of us play instruments Anyway, see, <laughs> that that's my education. You knew I wasn't going to be no good if I, if I was doing <laughs> like that at the very beginning of it all. Anyway, again, congratulations and shout out to everyone at Silk Road and Spelman College. And welcome here to the second movement where Scott and I are going to take a piece of music, a song, an artist, an aesthetic we've been spending some time with all weekend. Instead of repeating it fully, we go into why it had such an impact on us. Uh, I'll, I'll get us started this week, Scott, but... Uh, but before I do, I want to take your temperature on the phrase pop music. So when you we, we talk about classical music, decolonizing classical music, when you hear the phrase pop music, what are you thinking of? A genre, an aesthetic? What comes to mind? It's just a category. I hate the word. I hate I actually I absolutely hate it. It is so broad. You file anything under pop. Right. Um, because, you know, you were asking me about what rappers what female what women rappers i might remember and some came to mind and now i'm thinking no way they would probably put that under pop right i'm thinking about right. moni moni love mm-hmm. salt and mm-hmm. pepper right yeah well 
I'm beginning to think, and I need to pull on this mental thread more in my own mind, but I sort of believe that we can recontextualize so-called pop music as something that comes after the composition, pop music being nothing more than the uh, stylized version of a piece of classical music. Now, I didn't do that. I wasn't prepared to do do this last evening, but now that I've had a, a another 12 hours or so to think about it, I have a prime example. So I want you to listen to this and tell me, <laughs> are we listening to something that's pop or something that's classical? So, of course, this is Walter Murphy's A Fifth of Beethoven. Beethoven. Yep. So, does that mean now that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is not a piece of classical music because it has been put into a pop, a so-called pop sphere, in this case, disco? Do, does that mean Beethoven's Fifth is no longer a piece of classical music? I was just about to say, no, that, that's not pop. That's disco. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So, so even so is Beethoven's fifth symphony now a piece of uh, a, a disco composition or does it maintain its classical status? And this is just a stylized version of that. I'm going to say B it maintains okay. its status and it's a stylized version that you just played. So if we can recognize that when it comes to that, I feel like we can recognize that when it comes to a lot of the stuff that these artists put out, the songs that we know, we're just getting the stylized version. But before that was created, somebody was sitting at a piano or uh, in front of a guitar or, or doing something with a pen and paper, writing down words, writing down chords, whatever that gave birth to an American classical work, especially if it can be connected to uh, a foundational American aesthetic. And just because we don't see that part of it doesn't make it not a piece of classical music. So that that's the hill I'm dying on right now. I'm going to let that, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to let that develop a little bit more, but that's where I am right now. All of that to say the composer who I want to honor this week in the second movement, who I've been listening to in, intensely for the past few months, but uh, want to finally bring to the front is Lady Gaga. Now, mm. to what we just talked about, Scott, when I say the name Lady Gaga, what do you think of? Maybe fancy costumes and <laughs> wigs and I don't know. <laughs> She's an agitator. Oh, say more. Say more about that. Well, do you do you remember me showing you that artist Puddles Pity Party? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm I'm sure people know Puddles. Yeah. Well, he mentioned that the reason why he puts on makeup and sings these, you know, new treatments of classic rock songs is because without the makeup, he's just another guy who can sing right. operatically. <laughs> sure, right? Sure. So I think that Lady Gaga probably sensed that. And knew that she was going to need something else to make her stand out. Yeah. And how many different phases has she been in? You know, the, the meat dress phase and the, sure. um, the uh, American horror story phase. And, she, you know, she's, she has changed with the times. 
You, she was in what's the show the, the sopranos she was know, yeah she was in the episode when uh aj the son broke into the high school swimming pool she was yeah. there smoking cigarettes and laughing so when i listen you know and we're, we're getting off track i'm getting us off track here but you know when i listen to lady gaga especially there are several other artists who i think about this when it comes to sia is another one who i would put in this category but when i listen to lady gaga i'm hearing the composition and I'm hearing a stylized version of the composition. So to that, there um, have been a few more acoustic versions of her so-called pop tunes that I have especially been returning to today. And I'm going to share a bit of both of them today. The first one is a tune called Dope. Uh, I'll I'll, I'll say a few things, but let's listen to just a little bit of this acoustic performance of it. course, Scott, anytime I think about lyrics specifically and, and the cleverness of them, I always think of you. You know, when Lady Gaga sings, they've been hurt and low from living high for so long. Mm-hmm. I think we all can connect to that in some way when we finally have to face with what we've been ignoring by, by one means or another. And then just the statement, I need you more than dope. That sounds like sort of almost sounds like a cheesy Valentine card, but <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure you could think of times or a situation when that's actually a powerful statement, e- sure. even a, a very visceral statement. I need you more than dope. Yeah, because you know how it gets when you don't have that. Listen, so listen. <laughs> when that jar, when that jar get low, I get <laughs> yeah, so, I, I get a little antsy. But yeah, when so the the version of that composition that most folks know, of course, is very electronic and and has lots of uh, stylization on it and effects X, Y, and Z. But I really hear that. I, I hear that version of music when I listen to some of these so-called pop artists, especially Lady Gaga. And if we're going to affirm things like the art song, whether we're talking about Schubert, where we're talking about the spiritual or anything in between, if we're going to affirm the voice and the piano as something that is classic or classical, we can certainly do the exact same thing when it comes to music like that. I don't think it would be a long shot if we replaced Lady Gaga's voice with a violin. Okay, Mm. I feel like most folks would say, okay, fine, we can get away with that. Well, what if we can just affirm the composition and the composer behind it in the same way we would affirm an arrangement of it? What if we can think about the pop versions, the radio versions of this music as arrangements of compositions? I'm Mm. I'm pulling on that thread to kind of to to move us forward am i am i reaching (laughs) i don't know i see what you're talking about my question for you is were you a fan of late lady gaga's music from the get or did you have to come around to it well i was definitely a fan from the get because you know when she was really hot that was when i was in the heat of uh, when i was in heat when i was in the heat of (laughs) going to the club and and doing all that so that's who was playing so i was into it 
um, down the line as her career continued to evolve. She eventually got to that album called Joanne, which is a lot more folksy, country, acoustic. And that's what got me thinking about, well, what 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 else is has Lady Gaga done on the stripped down side of things? Um, which, you know, be- beautifully brings me to what I would consider my favorite song. You know, I'm not talking about my favorite symphony or my favorite piece of chamber music. You know, a song is something written in a strophic form for voice or whatever definitions we want to put on it. My favorite song is Lady Gaga's you and I, and I'm pretty sure that I've, I've shared this on Triloquy before, but I'll just share a quick excerpt of it again. There's a, a guitarist named Clint Hollinson who uh, created an acoustic version of the song, and it really pulls on some heartstrings when you hear it in, in, in this way. Something about lonely nights and my lipstick on your face. My cool Nebraska guy Here's something about Baby, you and I I mean, what a what a beautiful turn of phrase, though. Something about my cool Nebraska guy. There's something about you and I. You're the only, you're the, I'm trying to think. Well, you're not the only person now that I know from Nebraska, <laughs> but you were definitely the first person that I have ever met from Nebraska. So I'm sorry. When I, so when I think about that song, you know, of course, I'm going to think about you. And I know you were going along so good. And well, then you had I, to I run into yesterday, me. Yesterday, after we got done recording the first version of this, you asked the question about gender in songs. And, mm-hmm. you know, do I do I change gender if I'm singing the song and they're talking about a woman or, or X, Y, and Z? And I don't because I feel like the beauty of a really excellently written song is that it can even transcend some of those gender norms. If I grab my guitar or whatever and say, there's something about my cool Nebraska guy, there's something about you and I, Scott, there is something about us. I mean, look at all of the trouble we're causing out here in the hey. digital space. So that's that, that, that. there's something to that. And I think it's one of the reasons why I love that piece of music is uh, in, in particular is because it can be very romantic, but it can also be even more than mm. that. When I first heard her music, my first reaction was, this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was probably poker face that yeah. I heard, that I heard first, <laughs> yeah. but it wasn't until more of those acoustic things came out that I started to appreciate, you know, her voice more on its own, you know, uh, yeah. um, the, the way that she would sing and play piano. And then I started coming back around and now I do acoustic covers of poker yeah. face. So and there's, and there's something fan. to that. There's something very interesting because we got into this conversation by your saying, there are a lot of folks out there who feel like they have to add on and add on to mm-hmm. uh, reach more audiences or or have their light shine. And here you are attracted to her music, her compositions, when stuff was taken away and taken exactly. away and pare it down and stripped down. I think there's something to that. Listen, I classical audiences in the United States have gotten Drake from me. They have, and I'm talking about the original recordings, the studio recordings, you know, they've gotten Drake, they've gotten the Lenny Kravitz. I mean, I can, I can name all sorts of stuff. The next time I have the opportunity to do some live radio and some live radio programming, there's going to be some sort of acoustic Lady Gaga performance in there because Hmm. she's a composer that I think about a lot and whose music I listen to all the time. I may not always talk about it, you know, especially the way I like to center 
uh, black women and women of color when we're talking about women's music. But I think in the grand scheme of women's history and women's music history, there will be a paragraph, if not a page in that book about Lady Gaga. And mm. I want to make sure that I'm honoring her here during Women's History Month as one of my favorite composers. Shout out to Lady Gaga. And once again, Scott, there's something about my cool Nebraska guy. Isn't there, though? here in front of me. Isn't it, though? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, All right. Talk man. to me about the, uh, the music you got to share this week. Uh, I'm bringing in Dobrinka Tabakova. She is a Bulgarian-British uh, composer who has uh, a lot of really interesting pieces in her in her catalog but i always come back around to her concerto for cello and strings um it before, is but, but before you tell your heartfelt story that i don't uh want to interrupt uh we talked about this last night how Dabrika tabakova was actually on the very 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 first program that i put together for radio and uh i i, I want to read this break that I wrote about uh, Dabrika Tabakova and get <laughs> your reaction. And I promise I'm so embarrassed to read this, but uh, because Dabrika Tabakova's music is coming up, I always feel obliged to bring up the fact that she was there for me at the very beginning. When I think about mm. shifting the uh, sh shifting the status quo and pushing the needle when it comes to programming, different sort of things, Dabrika Tabakova was there. Anyway, this is what people heard on the radio from me. It was next. What what was playing before? Let me look real quick. Oh, do you know um, Supe's Light Cavalry Overture? Yeah, yeah. Don't uh, don't get dyslexic on that one. It's it, it's in my notes here as cavalry. That's what <laughs> I'm but anyway, so following that, I said after that was done, I was like, next we'll hear from Bulgarian-born and London-educated composer Dobrinka Tabakova. Her music has a particularly 21st century feel with its free mix of tonality and modality and is influenced by folk music. The piece we'll hear by her today was written specifically for Christina Blaumain, who is the principal cellist of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. It contains challenges for the cellist, along with requiring absolute control of the bow to convey the pensive, longing nature of the piece. Mm. If I I'm sitting in front of you for an air check. On my first day of work, after after my first radio shift, what are you going to tell me? Stop trying to sound so NPR-ish. Is that what you're going to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> Actually connect with the people. <laughs> um, I don't know if I've heard anybody use tonality and modality like that in, <laughs> and control of the bow. Because we all know how many cellists are out here with no control. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That would be good. That would be good. I'll, I'll, yeah. So maybe the break should be we we all had that niece or nephew who brought home the cello and Lord it wasn't right. <laughs> well, now I got something different for you. Right. Somebody who has complete control of the bow. Anyway, um, I, one th despite how uh, boxy and uninteresting <laughs> that that break sounded. I am, in retrospect, proud of the fact that I used the word longing just for as an Easter egg for all of the really smart people out there. Sure. Um, so so how, how about you pull on that thread, longing, as it applies to what you have to share? The piece as a whole rocks. I mean, the first and the second movement have some really wonderful, uh, quick tempo moments to it that'll really get your heart bumping. Mm -hmm. But the, the center movement, the second movement, is titled Longing, and it is just as romantic as any 
Tchaikovsky piece you want to throw out. Okay, so if you're going to throw out Tchaikovsky, plug in Dobrinka Tabakova. That's my yeah, advice. Yeah. Um, now we are we are we are tipping into spring finally here in the Twin Cities, and things are starting to melt. And let's be honest, everything looks like hell. Everything is a sloppy mess. Very slushy. And when, yeah. and when you come in, you're going to be tracking in who knows what kind of dirt, <laughs> but yeah. and mud. But um, so I'm out on a walk with radar, listening as I so often am. And when whenever Dobrinka's uh, cello concerto comes across, I, it, it's a piece that I have to stop what I'm doing and I give it my attention. Mm. I stop and I listen to it. And I stood at this. Uh, it was at the base of a fountain that's obviously not running right now. The sun was warm, wind sweeping across the still frozen over lake. And as I'm hearing birds and starting to become aware of spring's approach, that, that's got me thinking about my own mom. Hmm. Because this time of year was uh, when she really would shine. You know, she would always uh, be in such a great mood as spring approached and you could just you know feel you could you, you would be put in a better mood just by being around her mm -hmm. and as i'm sitting there looking at the uh, standing there looking at the lake and listening to this music i'll be damned if i didn't think that i caught her out of the corner of my eye but obviously you know you turn and you're alone but man if what i would not give to hear her voice just once or just to sit on the front porch and just be next to her. That would just be everything. Longing doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. And I, I think with that music, it captures the many different facets of longing. There's pining, there is melancholy, but there's also that joy of remembrance. And I'm at a point now, you know, she, this was in 94 that she died. And I'm at a point now that I can go back and remember things and not break down. You know, but it's still a it's still a lovely memory. All these things that I hold so close, all these memories of her. Uh, but I'm handling it much better now that I can give it a tribute and not <laughs> uh, not end up in bits. We we grow into certain things. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that this actually will be a really great transition into the third movement, but. Uh, the folks that I have met and have been able to commune with and fellowship with 
uh, on the Buddhist tip. You know, when when mm-hmm. when, it, when we talk about Nietzsche and Buddhism, they have really inspired me in so many different ways. You know, when I had the honor of uh, featuring my conversation with Wayne Shorter here on Triloquy, for folks who listen to that, one of the things you might remember is that he talks about how after his wife died, his then wife died in a car uh, in a, a plane crash, how he was dedicated to living an even happier life on her behalf for mm. for her sake not wallowing in sadness but being determined to offer positive karma to her spirit and to her legacy by living an even happier life and you know i can't imagine you know i i don't have the experience of of having lost my mother but scott i think it's very healthy and and you know very uh you know it, it just honors your mother's spirit for you to have uh, grown into the space where you are now, where you can just, as you say, long with affection, maybe not mm. long with sadness, but long in a way that honors her. Mm. You know, when I when I think about your mother, who I have never met, there are things that I think about that are completely disconnected from sadness and sickness and 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 all of those things. And I think that serves her memory well, that I get to think about her, um, you know, making little comments at you or your Josh and her at the store or the little little raisin cookies that you would make that you always talk about. Those are positive things that I get to connect with this woman that I didn't know. And that's all because of you. So, you know, for what it's worth, really contextualizing people who we no longer have in that way can really be a better way forward, uh, uh, certainly for their legacy and the way that we remember these people. The 25-year-old me would not have done well with that. The 50-year-old me does much better. So if that yeah. gives you any time, uh, any idea on how long it's taken for me to reach this point, 25, well, if, 25 years. If there's anything that folks know about you, yeah, I think I would even say folks who listen to this podcast is that you loved your mother. So mm-hmm. rest in power to her. And thank you for bringing in uh, the way that, that m- the music of Debrika Tapakova makes you think about her and that positive longing yeah. way. Yeah, you can well, do it. Um, uh, among the many, many, many people who um, I've met in my Buddhist circles is the person that I get to speak to in the third movement of this opus, the one and only Miriam Yousef Zadeh. Uh, Miriam is uh, a classical musician, just not of the Western sort. She sings music and plays instruments uh, from Iranian and and Persian cultures toward affirming exactly what we're doing here on Triloquy. I was given a a faith experience at a meeting, Scott, and, you know, I, I, I give it up in those spaces. You mm-hmm. know, I, I let I let the people uh, know who have no proximity to the work of DEI and the arts know how hard fought the battle is. I'm trying to decolonize. Da, 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 da. You know, I, I'm, I'm sitting there preaching to the people. And, uh, and, and Miriam heard me based on not only her status as a musician, but much of the work that she has done in schools and um, on tape toward making that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're listening to this when it uh, comes out on the 16th, she has a concert on the 20th this coming Sunday. Day at the Cedar Cultural Center in Minnesota. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk about the process of writing and creating music, the spiritual and emotional connection that she requires out of the musical experience. It was such um, a pleasure and an honor to feature her, and I hope that y'all enjoy our conversation. Where we start in the conversation is I asked Miriam about the challenge of affirming her musical aesthetic as classical to classically trained 
people, Western classically trained folks. The teaching this to the kids is one thing. Dealing with the adults is another thing. And that's where we begin our conversation. To get us into our conversation, I wanted to feature a track uh, from an album uh, where she's featured, an album called Migration. And this is a piece of music called Janae Mariam to give you a little bit uh, of the, the sauce that she puts out into the world, a bit of her aesthetic. Janae Mariam as featured on the album Migration to get us into my conversation with Mariam Youssef Sadeh. Jane Mariam, Cheshpato Vakon, Mano Negakon, Darumat Horshid, Shodhava Sefi, Vartehu Resi. Berimbe Sahro Nazanine Maria. I have had, you know, many that have said, I've never heard anything like this. And it's amazing that I've never heard anything like this, and yet I can relate to it. And I have heard people saying, Oh, God, that is so jarring hmm. to my face. And um, so it is, it just depends on where people are at in their life and in their growth. I did suspect that uh, teaching and engaging the young ones would be a little easier than the 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 more initiated. But I mean, is it is it a, a lost cause to try to uh, deprogram people in in that way? No, no, I wouldn't say so. Uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I continue to do the collaborations with different musical genres. I mean, like I have been wanting to have a chamber orchestra or to have a group like um, um, like um, um, what's his name the cello player um, that worked uh, that worked with uh, Bobby McFerrin oh. oh are you uh, are you talking about a uh, uh, yo-yo ma silk road yo-yo ma yes yeah his his orchestra, uh, his, uh, you know, orchestra made of Persian music, um, Japanese instruments and Chinese instruments and mm-hmm. classical instruments. And he brings them all together and he enables one to truly experience each instrument in its authenticity while it can blend and it can mesh and it can live within this construct of whatever it is that they're creating at that moment um, and be able to float in and out of whatever is going on at the moment. It's not a matter of right or wrong or it's not a matter of what key it's in because there is no such a thing per se. Um, but that that's, I've been trying to do something like that actually in the Twin Cities and I've, one of the thoughts I always had was I wanted to start a 24-hour concert and have it never stop Mm. and have start with one song or one melody that you know for for instance where I come from 
we can play a melody and um, we have Turks that play the same melody but slightly different. We have um, Azerbaijanis that play the same melody and play it slightly different. Then the Armenians do it slightly different. Then um, you go to India, they do it slightly different. You go to Afghanistan, they do it slightly different. But it's still the same melody. It's still the same song. So everybody actually recognizes it, but they play it differently. Hmm. Um, and I was hoping that I could find something like that with a set of musicians. Um, and then just have this music continue on and never stop. And have different musicians come in from different parts of the world and take that that melody and develop it into whatever else it ends up going. Yeah. And then see what happens at the end of the 24 hours. Where does it go? Does it come back? Or does it go somewhere completely different? Um, it, it's been a long time experiment of mine, a wish that I have wanted to make to just allow everybody to just become a part of this creation and this experience experience i call i don't call it an experiment i call it an experience because mm -hmm. i think through through that process each one of them will grow in a different way and will open up in a different way um and be exposed to something that maybe they would have never been exposed to yeah absolutely uh, your your use of the word experience i think is a a great segue into uh the album that i've been spending some time with today uh migration uh, i i told you before we uh turn on the microphones that the experience for me is what i really found very visceral the the spiritual connection to uh the music that that you are creating uh before we i guess before we talk about migration specifically um can you tell me a little bit about uh the musicians that you have collaborated with in creating this? Sure. Um, Tom Nordland, uh, Thomas Nordland is a local young guitarist, extremely gifted. Um, he's actually right now doing quite a lot of writing. Um, he's a very gifted writer. Let's put it that way. Um, Tom uh, studied with Tim Sparks, who started the group of Yacht with me. Um, many years ago and uh, Tim kind of got him started on Persian music and had him write a few arrangements on for instance John and Mariam and a few other songs and Tom sent those to me while he was still in college so since then we were looking at opportunities where we could work together um, it happened so that I was doing a gig with the Kazakh dancers um, that the dance company in the Twin Cities, and my guitarist could not play with us. So I asked Tom if he would be able to sit in and and uh, play with us. And amazingly enough, he had to obviously use the electronics uh, to get his guitar to have the, the appropriate sounds that we needed mm -hmm. to have in the orchestra. And that kind of got him started uh, with our music. From that point on, he and I decided to just continue to collaborate together, uh, which ended up with us writing um, several of the pieces and se several of the arrangements in this album. Uh, so that was the beginning of it. And then um, once I decided to record the album, 
Um, initially, the thought was just to go with bass, uh, guitar, and voice and have nothing else. Because I really wanted it to be pure and clean and um, just very simple, very honest. Um, I went to Wild Sound, and I know um, those guys very well. And I was told that I should maybe look at um, Tony Axel as the bass player, bass player mm. being that um, he plays the fretless bass. Because I really wanted the flexibility to to stretch and to really move away from the from the classical sounds all the time, yeah. the Western sounds, and have the flex have a, have a musician that has the ear, has the heart, has the spirit that can move with us, that can play something with us and with our music that is. Um, not forced to be westernized yeah put it that way yeah <laughs> um so um i was then you know i met with with tony and of course tony and i just connected like crazy and uh he was very excited and i gave him some of the some of the recordings and he started listening to it and then he came back to me and he said I have a roommate, Roger Wren, who um, is a phenomenal jazz pianist, is actually doing a lot of meditative music right now. And I think it would be good for you guys to include him in this, in this recording. So then it was just the four of us. We got together. Um, we went through the charts and just we gave them the basic melody and said here it is let's just see what happens let's just create so that's how we got started and we went through about you know several months of us just playing until we figured out exactly what we wanted to do overall on all of the pieces um without anything being um formally defined um we still wanted to have that fluidness in the recording sessions. And once we got to the recording sessions, everything was live. So I sang and they played live. We were in each in a different room because I didn't want to have, um, I didn't want to have us not being connected right. while we were playing this music. So that's how we recorded it. And we recorded it, of course, it took a long time to record it. Um, we did it several times until we felt comfortable, or I should say I felt comfortable <laughs> with what, what we ended up with. And then um, as we were going through the, the final pieces, we kind of thought there were places where we could use a little bit of percussion. So that was where we brought Greg Schutte and we had sessions with him on just percussion, because we really wanted something soft, nothing banging, um, like in a drum set. Right. Um, so Greg came and brought all kinds of toys from all over the world, and that's how he played. And that's how we added his, uh, his sound to the rest of the recording.
That's incredible. You you yourself have already described this as meditative music. I'm sure that 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 term meditative music is more than just the aesthetic of the music. Uh, I, w- I wonder if you can speak to that meditative music, not just as an aesthetic, but as something that serves a purpose for a listener or for an audience. So the intention behind the whole album, um, I think you would notice it from the beginning to the end. It, it's really intended to be contemplative. It's intended to get a person to lie down on the floor or lie down on the couch. Um, basically not talk and just listen hmm. and contemplate on the lyrics, contemplate on the melody, contemplate on how they're feeling and what it makes them um, experience as they're listening to this music. And um, what are they going to do with the wisdom gained from this music? Mm-hmm. Um, all the lyrics, as you may have noticed, they're all um, thought-provoking. They're intended to get you to think about how do you live? How do you live authentically? Um, how are you authentic with yourself? and with your surroundings. And um, that was really what I wanted. I wanted it to be a healing type of music, healing from inside your heart and your spirit. And that's why I wanted it to be something where, and I guess maybe that's something I'm going through, where you go inward more than going outward. Mm. Mm-hmm. You spend time thinking um, internally as to who am I? What am I all about? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? How am I going to live um, for the rest of my life so that I can actually feel that my life was worth it? When recording this music, I'm sure the experiences themselves are, are so visceral, just the process of, of performing this music for, for tape, for recording. Do you relive anything as you listen back to this uh, recording, oh, yeah. or, or do you, is it something new every time? Um, both. I should say both. There are times when I, you know, I listen, I go, oh, I forgot I did that. <laughs> um, and then there are there are parts of it, like some of Tony's uh, uh, solos. But first of all, I, mean, I of course as a singer, I listen to the bass player all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, amazingly enough, of course, I have all of his solos, and actually even Raj's solos, and even um, Tom's solos. I have them all memorized. I could sing with every single one of them. And it, when we play gigs and they don't play their solos the same, I can always tell them, oh, you changed that. <laughs> um, so, um, and in reality, it's a, it's a solo. It's not supposed to be repeated in the same way anyway. Um, but because of the amount of time I had spent listening to the album, and all of the different recordings, I had every single part and piece memorized. 
So when, when we were done, I had to put it aside and not listen to it for a while. Um, I needed to stay away from it so that when I listened to it again, it actually could be a, a fresh experience. Um, but it is amazing. It does the same thing to me every time I listen to it. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to see anyone. I just want to lie down on the ground with my puppy and just just listen. You know, there are Western orchestras everywhere that are exploring uh, more diverse musical palettes when it comes to who they invite in and, and who they'll feature. I want to ask if bringing this aesthetic to a Western orchestra is something that you've thought about, but a part of me feels like something would be taken away, something would be missing by putting the music in such a traditionally rigid frame that, that is an orchestra. No, it actually, the, the way I look at it is if I were to be with the orchestra, it gives the orchestra the opportunity to not do what they're used to doing. Mm. It forces them to let go of the control, to let go of the norm, be forced to be in a position of actually feeling and experimenting with who they are how their instrument feels and how does the music feel on their instrument at that moment. And a project like that would probably require about six months to six to 12 months because <laughs> it takes a long time to get deprogrammed. That sounds very expensive for a, for a whole orchestra and that much time. It does, but it's a part of learning. It's mm. a part of expanding and growing. To a point where, uh, for me at least, how how singing this kind of music and going back to my classical music, uh, what it has done for my form of singing and the way I react to my classical music is that I actually feel it more. I actually think about what I am um not only what I'm saying, but what are all the instrumentations that are going on underneath? And how do I express my voice um, differently so that it can be more truthful? And, and I don't want to get too much in, into the weeds, but I, I wonder if you could offer an idea or an example of what musicians would have to let go of to engage this music properly. What sort of tradition, what sort of uh, training that they'll have to break to really engage this in the way that it should be? So the, the only thing I can tell you is when I first started working with my band, Rabaya, of course, I was working with musicians that were classically, classically trained, Western music uh, trained. But they had the interest in, in being exposed to different music. Um, you have to remember when you play music from the, the Far East or from the Middle East or even from the Slavic countries, any of those, we're not, we're not, it's not just the notes, it's also the rhythm mm. and the way you feel and you attack, I should say, the note or the rhythm. 
for instance, in, in the case of Persian music, almost rarely, I would say very rarely, do you start on a one. Hmm. You always start on a one and on the and or and one. So it's, it's the breath before the note. It's the breath before the one that actually creates the expression you're trying to create. Mm. So it takes a long time to actually get used to hearing that and get used to feeling that and letting go of the one, the, the, the. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it took a long time for, for my guys, you know, when they worked with me to, listen and listen and listen and try to play with the recording and try to play with somebody else. And, and not everybody necessarily plays it the same. So you, you may hear the same melody uh, or the same piece of music by five different musicians and they're played five different ways. Um, not just arrangements, but five different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so it requires opening up opening your heart, opening your spirit, and just slowly learning to um, to let go of what you're used to, I should say. Um, so I, I can tell you that when, when I was a child, I started singing. Um, my sister was always playing her arpeggio on the piano, <laughs> and she was doing her finger exercises. And as a child, I'm talking, I was five and six years old. I would sit there and I would sing everything she she was playing. And if she missed a note, I would tell her, you missed that note. <laughs> because I had it memorized. So it's that ear part of it that I'm talking about. It's not as much the technique of playing. I'm talking about really hearing and feeling things differently. Um, I would say that's that's why it takes six months to a year to get used to this new new music, new way of approaching the music. Um, and then, of course, uh, figuring out where all those quarter notes and eighth notes are. Right. And um, if you're going up, you may play the quarter note. On the way coming down the scale, you play the eighth note. So learning all of those forms uh, which are what we call our, our modes um, instead of scales, uh, becomes a part of this process of opening up. That's the only way I can, I can express it. I mean, it, it took a long time for everybody to get used to the rhythms and the melodies and the, and the notes that they have to play. So, um, well, and all the different scales, different modes, they're very different. So while there are some spaces uh, in which these concepts are very foreign or would be very foreign, there are some spaces that have proven to be more open to some of these things. And I would consider the Cedar Cultural Center one of those uh, spaces. Uh, For folks who aren't uh, local here to the Twin Cities, I wonder if you could, uh, from your perspective, talk about what the Cedar is and why you have engaged the Cedar not only as a musician, but uh, as a board member. Well, I've been performing at the Cedar for the last uh, 20 plus years. Um, and the reason for it is that they really do bring music 
from around the world, authentic music from around the world um, to their to their uh, stage. Um, they enable uh, people from Minnesota because we do get audiences from everywhere to actually be exposed to music that you would not otherwise get exposed to, particularly in Minnesota. Um, the bands um, vary. Uh, some are, you know, authentic Irish music and authentic Brazilian music and authentic uh, African, let's say, uh, Jamaican music, uh, different, you know, really, truly authentic music. But then you get people like Angelique Kujo coming in where they take that African feel and they take it to the next step. Mm-hmm. They take it and they bring it to to a world that can actually understand and accept and and be able to eat and experience that music and digest that music. So it's that type of a place. It's alive. the The energy of the place is uh, it's not stale. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's a very lively place that every time you go to a concert, you're going to have a different experience. Because it's different music, um, the audience is different, the, the, the feel, the, the experience is going to be different. So it's really a wonderful place to be exposed to the world without having to travel all over the world. I have two minds. I have two minds about the cedar. A a part of me feels like it's this precious gem that has to be protected by all costs because of what it is. I also think of the cedar as an institution that could be exposed even more toward inspiring some of the more so-called traditional institutions to uh, open up their doors to more aesthetics and to more cultures and and sensibilities. I I wonder what you think about uh, concerning that issue. Um, well, uh, that's actually a part of what the board is working through. Hmm. It's really keeping it as a, as the gem that it is. That because that that is its differentiator um, from all the other venues that we have, music venues, and we have many of them, of course, in the Twin Cities. Um, but at the same time, it has to grow and change and expand. As the, as the years change and as the world changes and as the needs of humanity changes. So we are kind of in that place where we're, to, we're trying to define um, how do we progress without losing our essence of who we are mm-hmm. while we continue to collaborate with other venues and with uh, you know, there are many a times where we have concerts that somebody else um, scheduled, um, and yet the performance is going to be at the theater, or we collaborate with, you know, like First Avenue or someone else. So to transition us out of this conversation, I'm going to share a little bit of Gole Sanyam. It's a another track from the album I've, I've really enjoyed listening to. I wonder if you could uh, create any context as we uh, close out here on this piece of music, sort of give folks an introduction, something to think about as they're listening to this. Sure. 
You know, go to sing. I mean, it's interesting that you picked that song. That is a very, very much a favored uh, melody by uh, most beloved singer, Haide, um, during the time I grew up in Iran. So that would have been, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and Golasanga means my stone flower. Uh, and it's another one of those love stories where it brings the, the concept of having a flower where you think a flower is, is tender and it's soft and it's beautiful and a stone that is hard and it's lifeless, or at least you think it's lifeless. And he is singing this light, this other love song, um, talking about how he acts like a stone, um, but she still sees him as a flower. And that's the simplest way I can kind of summarize everything that, that is said. But of course, you know, if you listen um, to the lyrics, uh, there is also the translation in the album, so we can actually get a better feel for it. Sanyam from the album Migration featuring Miriam Youssef Sadeh, a beautiful performance. I was so glad to uh, get her on the phone and share our conversation with you. And if you're in the Twin Cities area, in the Minnesota area, be sure to pop by the Cedar Cultural Center this coming Sunday. It's really going to be a great time. Huge thank you to Miriam for joining me on Triloquy. Uh, I'll talk about it more next week, Scott, but uh, this week, uh, I'm speaking at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., and one of the things I'm going to dig into is prioritizing um, and foregrounding a spiritual or even emotional connection with music beyond what the music is or how we've concretized it over the course of, of music history. I wonder how you approach uh, that idea, that concept as a presenter, making sure that you're helping folks understand an emotional response or experience they can have through listening to something as opposed to focusing on the history or the story behind the piece and, and those sorts of things that we tend to lean on. Yeah. The emotional piece is my bag. You know, mm. I, I have to lean on that, not only because I don't know a lot of the terminology and, you know, things that you do know from all of your study, tonalities and modalities you would never catch me (laughs) (laughs) you'd never catch me spinning that yarn but uh so i have to rely on the emotional connection or the things that it might make you feel uh i always tried to get into the mind of what the composer was thinking in that moment you know Mm -hmm. and try to make it current um and sometimes the composers were just thinking about getting the next paycheck so they can find the next bottle of beer. Or a lot of the and, time. And some of your faves. A lot know, of the not time. Even, <laughs> we, we think about these folks as these rich celebrities, but Mozart had to be thrown into a hole with a whole bunch of other corpses when he died because yeah. there wasn't no money. You know? And 
<laughs> it's funny how that's not really the story that people want to hear, and yet that's the one that I love to tell. Is is that not the story? That I mean, is the story. And I didn't see the movie Amadeus until I was well and grown. Yeah. I think I watched it over quarantine. I had never seen it, but <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah, it was my first time. All right, I enjoyed it. I think they uh, portrayed him a little more silly than he probably was in real life. I get why based on my music history classes mm -hmm. that they went there. Um, but I did enjoy the pink wigs. You know, Nicki Minaj says she um, uh, originated the pink wigs. Well, apparently Mozart was doing it back in the 18th century. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, so to answer your question, I, I have to rely more on the emotional side and the, you know, the how you might react to a piece of music side. And sometimes I do get into the history, you yeah. know, because that's where Some, the story sometimes is. Sometimes it's interesting and relevant. Yeah. 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 Uh, in particular now with the unrest that we're seeing a pandemic you know all of this uh, all of the political strife well hell we didn't invent that i mean political stuff has been going on since the beginning right, right? where folks so, were really putting it on the line talking about the french revolution and stuff right. you know i, I would have been right there with the chevalier scott yeah <laughs> i shared a I shared a, a story about how Franz Schubert got arrested and, and man, it pissed some people off. Why are you talking about that now? Well, <laughs> so that and, you and, know. And, and, and see what jumps out. See, the approximating one of their faves to jail is just mm -hmm. so offensive. And that, that's, that's another conversation for uh, another time because we already running over. Are we? uh, we're going to get we're going to get into the uh, fourth movement uh, with a little piece of classical music, certainly a classic composition from the repertoire of Nicki Minaj, since we had her in the uh, downbeat this week. You know, Scott, you're talking about emotional responses to music. It's not always the feely emotions. You know, sometimes it's celebration or, sure. or, or all of those things. And it's all when that. I think about connecting that uh, concept to the catalog of Nicki Minaj, I wanted to go to a tune that I know a lot of folks know. I could dig into a lot of her deep tracks, but I think the song Moment for Life really represents for me when I'm getting into my bag of celebration and um, and affirming myself and experiencing all that through music. So anyway, not necessarily a trill to get us into the fourth movement this week, but some trill music to do so. An excerpt here from Nicki Minaj's Moment for Life. In this very moment, I'm king. In this very moment, I slay Goliath with a sling. This very moment, I bring. Put it on everything that I will retire with the ring. And I will retire with the crown. Yes, no, I'm not lucky. I'm blessed. Yes, clap for the heavyweight champ. Me. But I couldn't do it all alone. We, young money raised me, grew up out in Paisley, Southside Jamaica. Scott, that's one of those direct deposit songs. You know, when you finally get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Did she say, I'm not lucky, I'm breast? Blessed. Okay. No, I'm not I, lucky, I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm just making sure. But, she also, but she's also breasted. I mean, I think yeah. any of us can can see that. I'm not looking in that way, obviously. But mm -hmm. <laughs> but I also appreciate, you know, she's like, you know, clap for the heavyweight champ me, but I couldn't do it all alone, we. So, you know, it's self-affirmation, but it's also, you know, shouting out all the homies, everyone mm. who has helped, you know, make, make the thing possible. So, you know, uh, uh, again, Scott, but I couldn't do it all alone. We, you know, and also clap for the heavyweight champ. <laughs>
uh, <laughs> all right, we're here in the fourth movement uh, where, you know, we're, we're just going to keep it trill, as it were, and speak to some of the tea and the drama that's going on in the ecosystem. All right. So first and foremost, Scott, I wanted to um, take your attention to the West Coast. I'm reading from the Los Angeles Times here. It says Long Beach Opera cancels Stimmung. Director resigns amid investigation into issues of equity and diversity. Just with that title, Scott, to me, it sounds like they're saying that the director was caught up in something Same. and resigned. Is that what it sounds like? That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's intentional. I'm, I'm going to read a, a little bit of this and then offer some, some other insights. So um, it says here, Long Beach Opera on Monday, that's yesterday, uh, March 14th, announced the cancellation of Stimmung, its first show of the 2022 season in a lengthy online statement. The reason? Stimmung's director, Alexander Gideon, resigned a little more than a week before the show was set to open on March 19th. All right. So I was actually on a Zoom call with Alexander Gideon today. Mm. Um, unfortunately, he was dismissed from Long Beach Opera after they canceled this opera because um, he felt uh, that they felt like that he sabotaged them and, and X, Y, and Z. I'm going to link in the description of this opus the personal statement that Alexander Gideon uh, put out there, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let y'all read that, but I will read here a response from the Black Opera Alliance, of which um, I'm a member of the Leadership Council, and I actually drafted this text, so I, I feel extra comfortable reading this. It says here, on March 14th, Long Beach Opera announced the cancellation of its upcoming production, Stimmung, following the resignation of stage director and Black Opera Alliance member Alexander Gideon. In their statement, Long Beach Opera referenced the resignation of some of its staff back in December, with each of the signatories promising to fulfill their responsibilities through the end of the season. However, for reasons expressed in his personal statement linked here, and again, y'all will see that Alexander Gideon found himself unable to continue in his role with the production. So long story short, Scott, and this is the story that you will not get from the LA Times and all of these other news outlets. Alexander, alongside a few other people who at this point have been named by the LA Times, saw that uh, Long Beach Opera was not doing their part in quelling some systemic issues. Uh, misogyny was cited. Pay inequity was cited. Microaggressive racism was cited. And they sort of brushed it off or didn't act on it. So uh, these folks wrote a group letter all uh, read before the board at the December board meeting of the Long Beach Opera resigning. Of course, Folks like Long Beach Opera want to be in control of the narrative. But just as Nicki Minaj was talking about in the opening movement, when we speak up, when we build our own platforms, when we affirm each other and each other's work and each other's humanity and the equity that needs to be passed to us, there are certain narratives that can't go in the way that they always have been. Yesterday, I read the statement for uh, for you from Long Beach Opera, basically saying, you know, this is why we did it X, Y, and Z, very, um, very square, just like that break that I read for uh, from you from Debrika Tabakova. Uh, so, you know, basically, what I want to throw at you, you know, ask you, are we getting to the point where official statements from companies? are just not going to seem valid based on the means of information that we have that are connected outside of these big infrastructures and institutions. 
the statement that Alexander Gideon has is very different than the story that the Long Beach Opera is alleging. And honestly, I can't help but to side with Alexander, not knowing anyone involved personally. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the future of, of these official statements from arts organizations as we see more people platform themselves and speak up for themselves and speak up for each other? I think the, I think the curtain is going to be pulled back very quickly, but I still want you to clarify for me. Did Alexander quit or was he released? So in and again, I hope everyone who cares about this story will uh, find the link in the description and and read the statement. So in the letter of uh, the group letter of resignation, everyone who was resigning had already signed contracts and agreements into the future based on their involvement with upcoming performances. Mm. So, for example, Alexander, in his statement, said that uh, his last day would be the end of the production of Stimmung, which he was at the artistic lead for. So mm -hmm. he didn't, you know, want anything to happen to the, you know, because we have to think about all the musicians, you know, everyone involved artistically, the hair and makeup people that are getting paid night after night to make sure that this thing is going. So he was thinking about them and said, I'm going to wait to resign. I'm going to wait to uh, hang it up here until after that. Well, their response was to let him go immediately and cancel the show, which puts them $150,000 in the hole. You see, that's not money that we're missing. That's money they're missing. But that that's that's the little bit of dust that you won't always be able to read in the news, especially as this continues to unfold and unravel. When I spoke with uh, Alexander today, he talked about how the LA Times um, had actually reached out to him for feedback. The New York Times was in his uh, inbox. So it's, you know, uh, rags, uh, you know, and I, and I'll, I don't say that, uh, you know, no shade, but mm -hmm. there, there are news outlets everywhere who are interested in this and want to put forward their own messaging. My guidance to everyone involved was that he needs to be at the front of the narrative and the news sources need to be coming to something that's trusted by members of the community that he is, you know, fighting for and, you know, stepping down from positions like these. So, um, that 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 hopefully that clarifies for you. So it he, does because it, it yeah. does yeah because it doesn't line up with the headline from this L.A. Times article exactly. But uh, exactly. it also says in here that uh, you know everything was fully funded, built, and rehearsed. The unique staging and concept had been Gideon's brainchild. They mm -hmm. said it did not seem feasible to continue without him. The statement read. Now, wouldn't that have been even more roguish if they went ahead and did the production without him? And that was a bit of the conversation. But again, if he agreed to oversee the performances until the end of, uh, the, okay. of the series, yeah. you know, like was planned, that would be one thing. And he could leave and we could file our grievances in a different way. But it just I, I think it's just becoming so apparent how ill-equipped the status quo is <laughs> within arts institutions of dealing with folks on the ground, uh, arts activists and, and, and all those folks who are willing to put it on the line to speak up for themselves, to speak up for each other. And I just want to make sure that folks hear it here um, as as the story continues to evolve. I'm sure I'll, I'll probably bring it in as an accidental or, or something next week because there's going to be more writings about it. But, you know, I just want folks to know that you have to stand up for yourself. I am, no, and this is what I was telling uh, to Alexander when I was on the line with him. I said, I'm no stranger to getting fired on a headline and, and for a news story to be following me. 
what we can take advantage of in those moments is empowering other people, hel- helping other people understand that their uh, their autonomy, their their humanity should be affirmed in all ways. And if we're just ringing the bell, punching the clock and ig- ignoring all of the microaggressions that surround us, that's going to be pain that someone else has to deal with. So I take my hat off and honor Alexander Gideon for his work and all of the other signatories of the resignation letter that you'll be able to read uh, linked in the description of this. Be sure to uh, keep an eye on that story and make sure that you understand what you're reading from the big box news sources may not be telling the whole story because they're telling the story of the Long Beach Opera and not the actual artists involved. All right, for my second triloquy, second and final triloquy this week, I did bring this up last week, Scott, and um, you know, it, this story has also changed in the past twelve hours or so. So um, there's going to be a new opera. Well, there might be a new opera called A New American Opera, Emmett Till. I'm reading here from Change. It says, a white playwright, Claire Koss, has decided to write an opera about the tragic torture and murder of Emmett Till to be shown at the Gerald W. Lynch Theater at John Jay College. The play will center a fictional white school teacher named Roan Taylor, who was supposedly progressive and against Jim Crow and racial inequality. Claire Koss has creatively centered her white guilt by using this play to make the racially motivated brutal torture and murder of a 14-year-old child about her white self and her white feelings. I should also mention, Scott, that uh, what I'm reading here at Change.org uh, is presented in conjunction with a petition, petition to make sure that this actually does not hit the stage. I've been looking at this petition all day, and um, I'm sure it'll reach its 5,000 signature goal by the time this comes out to y'all. But as I'm reading it right now at about 10 p.m. Central on March 15th, um, it has a little more than 4,800 signatures. So uh, it's it's getting there. What has been interesting about this little saga, Scott, is the fact that the folks on the production side have responded to critiques directly to the Black Opera Alliance and other institutions responded to those critiques by saying, well, uh, the, uh, the person who wrote the music is a black woman and there are black people that are going to be in the cast and on uh, and in the orchestra and, and X, Y and Z. I feel like what people are pushing back on on my side of the argument, I'll, I'll take ownership, is the fact that there is room for black joy and not black murder and black pain and black trauma. And for the story to be written, if not musically through the libretto, through the eyes of a white woman, and then for the opera itself to center a white character, there are a lot of people calling foul. And I can't exactly gaslight those individuals into feeling like their perspective and being tired of black trauma on the stage is is something that you know, they shouldn't be concerned with. I mean, I I know this is sticky and there are many sides of the argument, but when it comes to an Emmett Till opera, as someone who is familiar with the story, Scott, is this something we need? Is this the way to tell the story? And if this is the way to tell the story, to what end, to what means are we telling this horrific, traumatic story in this way? First off, when you told me that there was an Emmett Till opera coming out, my assumption was the correct one, that it would be from Emmett's perspective, you know, mm-hmm. or that it would that it would tell that story, because the story of the 
of the woman. We we have that. Yeah. Do we not? Yeah. And she, and she's still walking around here alive and well, while Emmett Till is somewhere down in the grave. You know, she's living. She's comfortable. Yeah. She's fine. And that's the part that doesn't sit right with me. Um, we're about to close out, but let me ask you this. So, and and this podcast is called Triloquy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we were done recording our first attempt <laughs> last night or maybe before we watched that show called peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is not an ad for peacemaker. I'm just making a point at the end of the second episode. There's a scene where a whole bunch of folks in jail, a whole bunch of white men in jail get down on their knees in front of someone who has just been admitted to the jail to pledge their allegiance to him as a white supremacist leader. I think they even use the phrase, hail the white dragon or, right. or something along those lines. That was lines. His, okay. uh, his super villain name, yeah. The argument that folks in the production of this Emmett Till opera are making is that there are black people involved and you can't erase them and the benefits they can see from this. Just because there is an opportunity to be a part of some artistic endeavor doesn't mean it's right to be a part of it. I got out of the acting game, Scott, you know, when I was an extra and would even uh, do some speaking roles on, on TV, I stopped answering the calls the second time they asked me to be a slave on somebody's TV, which was something that I was never gonna do, okay? I think it goes without saying that you would not take a, and as someone who has been on the stage, an actor in your own regard, you would not take the gig to bow down on your knees before a white supremacist leader and yell, hell, hail the white dragon. No. I'm sure that is not something that you would ever consider. So the conversation that we need to start to have is that sometimes, especially in arts sectors, there are better options. There are things that's there are things that are more important than you're being visible, than you're being represented, than you're getting a check from some sort of artistic endeavor. We have to really begin to slice the cake in a way that we're separating an equitable opportunity from someone using us and our skin. I'm sure those folks over on the Emmett Till side of of of, of the conversation, the folks in production, they couldn't wait to talk about how many black folks are involved and all oh, you're in racing X, Y, and Z and they're here. But just because they're there doesn't mean that they should be there. And it doesn't mean that there's a system in place that would offer them something different if if they have the choice. I'm sure, Scott, if all of the black folks, and well, I don't know them, but I'm imagining that the black folks involved with that opera would take a gig that paid a million dollars instead of that, you know, so mm-hmm. that so money would get them out of it. So how about we begin to think about values pulling us out of certain situations and out of certain productions? If it were up to me, every black singer, every black opera professional in the country, much uh, more over the world would never agree to another performance of Porgy and Bess, Mm. much less any other sort of opera that perpetuates black trauma. Because I feel like for folks who are not black, the feeling is I'm taking in this black trauma. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this story as portrayed in this predominantly white space. So that must mean I'm a good person to sit here Mm -hmm. and listen to this story of black trauma. I am doing the work. No, that is not the work. So as this story continues to develop about whether or not this Emmett Till 
opera makes it to the stage. Like I said, I'm sure we'll be at 5,000 signatures. I shouldn't say we, because it's not my thing. I'm sure change.org will be at 5,000 signatures for the petition. I'm just going to refresh here really quickly while I'm on the mic. Yeah, right. Uh, we're approaching uh, 4,900 signatures out of the 5,000. So when I'm, I first I, when I first loaded the, when I first loaded this page, it was at 4,500. And yep. that was an hour and a half ago. So, so almost 500 still, signatures in an hour and a half. It's growing. So as we move forward, as we think about the way that we can shift art spaces, as we think about the ways that certain narratives are being pep, uh, uh, perpetuated by our being in the space for good or for bad, we need to think about these things and consider that there's more to being in art spaces and transformative art spaces than portraying our historic trauma for the sake of someone else's good feelings. Second time's a charm. It better be. Thank mm. you for listening, everyone, to take two of Opus 142 at Friliquy. We'll see you next week.